0: Welcome to episode 70 of the Enneagram Journey Podcast with Relationship Guru, Suzanne Stabile. My name is Joel Stabile, and I work for Life in the Trinity Ministry, and I'll be along for the ride like I usually am. At a recent workshop, my wife, Whitney, took a shot at me as a seven and explained to the group how at least once a week I will call something the best ever, the best steak ever or the best afternoon ever, that was one of the best games ever. Uh, this Tuesday was the best Tuesday ever, and she alleges that that's a seven thing. I don't know if that's true or not, but this is one of our best podcasts ever. Anagram 6, Leslie Bly joined Suzanne on the journey today, and their discussion was such a gift to get to sit in and listen in on and be a part of a little bit. Leslie is a therapist and mother of twins in Austin, Texas, twin boys. She's married to Kevin, who is an anagram 9. Uh, Some bullet words that I caught were duty, desire, bravery, motherhood. There's a lot of dependent stance talk, so it's a good episode for ones, twos, and sixes, or people who love ones, twos, and sixes. And it was really interesting to hear how she talked about uh, how she, as a six, feels about paradox. It turns out also that fours aren't the only personality with a uh, push pull conundrum. The super exciting plug for today and some people might even say the most exciting plug ever is for the anagram and the Holidays with Suzanne Stabile on November 22nd. This one's very exciting because if you can't be in Dallas for it at the MICA Center it is going to be available online. We are partnering up with Kling who's going to handle the simulcast and you'll be able if you do the online viewing you'll have access to it for the following 72 hours it won't be used as a podcast or at least as a product later, so it's something that you don't want to miss out on. And you can visit anagramjourney.org or LifeInTheTrinityMinistry.com for details and registration. If you are in the area and can make it, this party is going to start at 4 o'clock. Uh, we're going to start it with a showing of the Family Stone. So we can all have some fun and debate about the different uh, personalities of the characters in that movie. So it's going to be a lot of fun. Hope you can come. And if you can't, then I hope you can join in online for the rest of the evening. Please enjoy today's podcast as well. Good luck on your journey. And uh, we hope to see you at the Micah Center soon or at an upcoming event. How
1: are the
2: kids? They're good. They're good. They're, they're crazy, but they're good. This is third grade for them. You know, it's and
1: so that's the best.
2: This is like the sweetest spot we've had yet.
1: Yep. Third grade is it as far as I'm concerned. I am like
2: more attached than I ever knew how to describe attachment. And for me, it came later because of all the anxiety in the beginning. Yeah. But um, I can really see it and feel it now. Yep. And yeah. That's, yes. And then I know it'll dissipate. Not, that it, not the attachment, but I mean, I know yeah. life is going to keep rolling. But boy, am I like hunkering down in the savoring. It's so great.
1: I, I think there's a sense in us as parents where we know that after that year, everything changes. The beginning yeah. of change comes after that year. And I
2: yes. I just
1: love third grade it's for like all, all my kids.
2: Spot. It's like the bright dawn before the, I don't know, there's just something. There's yeah. been something wonderful about this age. Yeah, I and something
1: it. happens around hugging and affection and everything after third grade. Yeah. So yeah. I also think everybody I talk to, you know, people will say, I don't even remember who my seventh grade teacher was. And I'll say, bet you remember your third grade teacher, and everybody does.
2: That's right. It's yeah. a huge turning point. Yep. For, yep, yep. The, yeah. for
0: the record, you all give me a hard time about all the things that I remember from third grade. <laughs> that I, I referenced everything back. I was like, this happened in third grade. Third grade. And I was in third grade. It was record, third grade. We
2: remember it too. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, Joel re- says that things that happened when he was in eighth grade happened in third grade, but uh, we don't need to go into that debatable. publicly. Leslie, I think it'd be, we would be amiss if we don't start with you talking about who you are, how you got to the Enneagram, and a little bit about your sixness. Okay. And I'll probably interrupt all that as we go along and say, well, what about this and what about this? But let's set the table for everybody. And I, I think that's particularly important for sixes who are listening okay. because they don't necessarily trust who you are till they hear it from you and until they hear where you came from to get there, right? So right. that's what I'd love to start with.
2: Well... Um, it was probably seven years ago. I had I have twin boys who are eight, so they were about a year, year and a half. And I got on my first sort of girls' weekend getaway with just a couple of friends. And because of having new kids and not sleeping for yeah. a year and a half, I got to this point, couldn't wait to sleep and sleep in, and couldn't sleep at all. Yeah, <laughs> um, as as the irony goes of parenting. So. All, you know, three of my friends are, are dead asleep and one of them brought this yellow book that said personality types. And I'm a counselor. I had been counseling at that point for, I don't know, five or six years. And I've always been drawn to personality and, um, you know, I always had clients who came in telling me they're Myers-Briggs yeah. and me their DISC. And, um, so, I've always been drawn to that, so I I looked over at this book. It's you know by Rizzo and Hudson, and I had never seen anything like it. I, I didn't know how to even pronounce the words on. I didn't know how to say enneagram. I didn't know what I was looking at, and I just started thumbing through it because I'm just wide awake. Why not? And I read through a couple of chapters. I read on a chapter. I read the. Chapter on twos. Yeah, and I thought, oh, I bet this is me. I'm um, a Southern Christian. Grew up in Atlanta. Was in college ministry. Learned all about service. I was hopeful that people thought I was loving, and I'm a counselor. I just thought, oh, this is this is me. This is capturing all the best of my heart. And um, and then I kind of thumbed through a few more chapters, and I I literally just opened to the chapter on sixes. I don't remember reading three, four, and five, so I don't know what happened. But I got to the chapter on sixes, and my heart absolutely sunk. I could feel my heart rate through my chest. And I thought, and maybe this is a sixth thing, I immediately thought, my friends brought this book, planted it on the table next to me in hopes that I would read this and understand how difficult I am.
1: That's for I sure would, a sixth thing.
2: OK. Yeah. That was my reaction. My secondary such a, reaction. Let
1: me stop you for one minute because that's such a good example of that overarching anxiety about things yes. where because of sixness and because we're thinking repressed, I'm in that with you. Yes. Then we just make up things. Yes. And I'm like, always telling
2: stories yeah, in my yeah, head. Yeah. Constantly. Yeah.
0: I think the other level of that being a sixth thing, your reaction that you said that they left it there to show how? What'd you say?
2: Difficult, how difficult, difficult. I difficult
0: because I would, I think the first part of it is a head triad thing, of how did how did this happen that I'm reading this? Uh, but if, yeah. when I if I had picked it up and read any of it and yeah. read sevens, I wouldn't have had that anxiety about yeah. the reason why it's there. I would have thought they planted this.
1: You would have thought that.
0: Yeah, because I mean, you got to connect the dots. Like, what are the odds of? Picking up and reading all about yourself randomly. Like that doesn't
2: That's Yeah, so- I mean I relate to that. Being in the head triad, that just turns on first. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, when you I know- have a reaction, my head turns on first. Yeah. So I'm thinking, what what how did this happen? What is happening? And was this planned? You yeah. know, was this is there some I mean, you know, the story I tell myself? Yeah.
1: Well that fascinates me because you know that that would never occur to me like I wouldn't and I don't have to connect the dots Hmm. like I would be thinking oh how do I get one of these I love this I can't take this one how am I going to get one of these wonder who I am wonder who the children are everything for me would be I want more and relational but not certainly not connecting any dots I don't yeah Yeah. I don't even understand what y'all are talking about really (laughs)
2: <laughs> I do I get that Joel the connecting the dots I haven't said it that way but that really feels true for me
1: so the one of the things I'm interested to about this whole thing about picking up the book is you said that they left it you thought they left it to show to talk about or show you how difficult you are yeah well, you wouldn't think that right
2: mm-hmm.
0: I think that is the biggest difference between six and sevens and it's not this is going to be one of those real blanket statements. That might not be true, might not, like, but I think y'all understand what I'm trying to say. I think that the overall tone of sixes is pessimism mm-hmm. and negative, and the overall tone of sevens is optimism and positive, mm-hmm. and both to to a fault.
1: Yep, agree. Right. Both extremes. I agree and so I'd read
0: it and thought, man, sevens are awesome. <laughs> 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 and this is absolutely me. And I and I don't know how this got here. It doesn't make sense that it's here. And I'm gonna show it to my friends to make sure that they Hey, did you find, yeah. did you see this? This is right. me. Yeah. This advertisement is very for interesting. Venus seven.
2: Yeah, I had the opposite experience, Joel. Mm-hmm. It was like I'd never made so many connections before in my life about how I operate. But all the good things that were mentioned, all this fidelity and loyalty and depth and good for all people, that was lost on me because no one had ever named my push-pull, my independence and dependence, Mm -hmm. these opposite paradoxes that had never made so much sense to me and I'd never felt so known and it had never felt so bad to be known.
1: I want to talk about those paradoxes because... I have a big question around that and wanting to know if you think you experienced that because of fear and anxiety. Like, are you an either-or thinker because the middle doesn't hold comfort? So let's talk about those uh, in the order that you shared them with us, which, if I can find it, is... um, Here's what you say. I felt so captured by the paragraph Graph about paradoxes for a six. The push-pull. I want to talk about how you push and how you pull, and what is behind that, as far as you know at this point.
2: For me, what's always behind everything is self-doubt and fear. So, and and those aren't always the same experience. Um, they feel different to me. The self-doubt and the fear feel like different, but regular. <laughs> things that operate for me. So the push-pull, that, as far as I understand it, it's this experience of, I'm drawn to so many things. I'm drawn to any one and anything that seems truthful or that seems strong or authoritative or admirable. But because I have this um, experience of needing to feel safe, if at any point i don't feel comfortable or safe i push yep. and that could happen in the same hour it could happen after two years of of the drawn of the pole mm-hmm. it it just happens eventually this push-pull experience yep. with the same person same movement same thing yeah same idea and that's very confusing unless you understand p- paradoxes that live within a six right Right. I just was confused forever. Do I love this or hate this? Do I like this person or hate this person? Do I want this job or hate this job? And and so you're exactly right. When I think about why is it such extremes Mm -hmm. is because anything that's not very definitive is very uncomfortable for me mentally and emotionally. And so I have to choose one pole or the other. And I'm more familiar with the, unsafe pole you know I'm I'm more familiar with and that's where the pessimism that Joel talked about feels like it kind of wins out in the end
1: Yeah. do you um, now and think about this for a minute before you answer me because I've never asked this question and I I'm, I'm a little afraid of it do you trust yourself more than you trust other people ultimately like ultimately even though you self doubt do you trust yourself more than you trust other people?
2: Here's why that's hard to answer. Ultimately, I trust my doubt. That's
1: that's the answer. Like that's perfect. I, I'm sure you doubt that, but that is perfect. <laughs>
2: <laughs> like I do doubt that. <laughs> well, if that makes sense to you, then great.
1: Really, I I think that that is, that fits perfectly into why would you trust people that you haven't questioned, that you don't know enough about? Why would you trust ideas that you haven't kind of put through the paces? Why would you?
0: Well, and that supports what you just said about the paradox of love and hate, when you don't know how you feel about something and you've done that for your whole life and moved through life that way then that is what you lean on.
2: But I love people and I love relationships. So I I can't stay there, which is why it goes back to the pull. I'm not allowed to stay somewhere that doesn't feel good or right. Ultimately. Right. Right. So I'm the first one to try to resolve the relationship or, you know, I was fired from one of my first jobs and I was fired over the phone at like 9 PM. It was so terrible but I was the one trying to get a mediation so that as brother and sister in the church, we could still have peace. Yeah. And yeah. everyone was like, he fired you. Yeah. Be mad. Be mad. Yeah. And, and he
1: did it at nine o'clock at night. Be really mad. Right. And he did it on the phone.
2: Be really, right. really, really, really mad. Yes. Yeah. And I couldn't get there more than I could get to, but this isn't right. We need to have peace. Now, that is very
1: interesting to me because I want to talk with you about my understanding from sixes in my teaching that you kind of keep up with being wronged or being treated poorly and you don't forget. You forgive, but you don't forget and you carry that with you. Yeah. Do you think that you had the desire for peace because you intuitively knew that you were going to carry that with you forever? If you didn't come to some kind of resolution
2: well I do I think that's part of what's interesting about loyalty I mean of course there are so many lovely things about being a loyal and dependable person, but that's so diff it, it's so hard to break loyalty when you've built it that someone could fire you and you could still feel loyal yep I think it was a I think it was maybe twofold maybe it was the I don't want this to be the end of that story. And I will remember that story. And two, I'll tell myself this story. If I don't heal, like I need something that kind of heals because I'll carry that story in terms of other bosses won't be safe.
1: With you. With me. Right. right, Cause you won't trust them. You, you, right. You, and maybe if we healed over here, yeah, yeah.
2: that would carry forward. Cause right. I'll just chain everything out and right. just not talk to my new boss.
1: Right. Don't trust anybody. I've learned. Yeah. You're Mm -hmm. not going to fire me at 9 o'clock at night on the phone. That's right.
2: Maybe I just won't let you get to know me, although I'm dying to know you. You seem amazing.
1: Yeah. 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 Isn't it interesting that the ways we try to protect ourselves often are so damaging?
2: Yes.
0: Is that an example, just one example of chaining for a six where it's this?
1: Yep. And I I don't know, uh, Leslie, about you, but But when I chain, so for anybody who doesn't know what we're talking about, I teach that ones, twos, and sixes do a lot of chaining, meaning that if something bad happens, they chain it to every other bad thing that happened. And if something good happens, they chain it to every other good thing, but they do that with their number connected to it. Yeah. So when you chain it to every other good thing, it's not like freedom. It's like, what did I do that kept that good? It's like mm-hmm. another burden when you chain on the positive side as well. And I I, th- I think that in order to chain things and trust the chain, we make up part of the story that goes around it. Yeah. Is that true for you?
2: Yes, because what broke that chain ultimately was me becoming angry and recognizing that what he did was wrong. Yeah. And that took years to name something that somebody else could have named on day one. Yeah.
1: It's very interesting when I work uh, in a group with men and women who have been uh, sexually abused Mm -hmm. because they and I continually um, ask the question, regardless of how much therapy I get, what did I do that caused that? Mm -hmm. And and it doesn't mean overt. You know, how was I not strong enough? that anybody Definitely. thought they could do that to me or, you know, all that all that stuff that goes.
2: Right. And I think being in the dependent stance, there, there is this responsibility that is like the last thing to go when the healing finally comes. Right, right. It's like that has to be laid down. And right. for some of us, it just takes so much work to lay that down.
1: You know, I was abused in a foreign country at 16. And I didn't get really good therapy until I was in my late twenties and early thirties. And so it was way past a time when anything could have been done, but my therapist just insisted that I go through all of the procedure of reporting it and filing charges and doing all of that because it's the only way I could get angry. That's right. I could be sad and I could be hurt and I could be all things, but not angry.
2: You can't move toward justice without letting your anger get connected. No, you you just can't. No,
1: and you can't break any chaining without the risk of of taking care of yourself and believing in yourself and being angry. Yeah, Yeah, it's fascinating. That so much. Yep. We're a lot alike in that way. Twos and sixes. A lot Mm -hmm. alike.
0: You talked about take. You know, when you finally it took years to realize that you were not responsible for that, and I bet that has applied to. Like every situation, that it's not a, this isn't my fault. Right. That everything first has to be considered from the lens of, this was my fault. Yeah. And other yeah. numbers, do other numbers do that as much as sixes? No. And then it seems from you, what you're saying and what I've heard, that sixes are very relational.
2: Very. Yeah.
0: And so, and then on top of that, then, is that you're in the head and thinking triad. So right. those three things, I don't understand how there couldn't be anxiety when you put those three things together. Of I'm responsible oh, all the time, right? For 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 things that I'm not responsible for, right? And right. relational, it,
1: and yeah. for this and all the other things that happened that looked like this. So you're also carrying that with
0: so you. It is impossible to make a decision quickly when that's what you're dealing with and working when
2: that's your stack. Yeah. 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 I can relate to that. What works for you
1: in terms of, uh, trying to manage self-doubt?
2: Well, so when it comes to, so Joel just said something that really is a part of my practice and it may sound simple to a lot of other people, but because I have to wrestle with, my level of responsibility, which often means my level of wrongdoing. Yeah. And because I'm in the head triad, I need to be able to name and understand what I've done. Yeah. It's just a work of my brain. I got to get it. I got to make the connections. Joel said, connect the dots. Um, so I have to give the other person, party or thing, a context that is reasonable. Because otherwise I get so big, but not in, the ni- not in a good way. <laughs> not yeah. in a it's in like the reverse of pride, (laughs) you know, the other side of pride where you just measure yourself against other people and you're small. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So I have to give other people reasonable context for things. And that begins the work of kind of neutralizing that anxiety and that responsibility wrestling match. And when I can give someone else their proper honor in a situation I usually can start fighting what looks like black and white, thinking about what I've done or who's who who did anything wrong. It was probably me. I have to start somewhere outside of me to get to treating myself fairly in a situation because I'm so dependent on kind of how the outside is going. That it helps me to start out there and work work back my in. way back. Uh huh. All right,
1: I have so many things. Like right. A-
0: who who did anything wrong? Probably me. <laughs> <laughs> thought that like once in my entire life there you go
1: i'm so jealous of that joel (laughs) well and but let me tell you what my question is my question is why is this happening i have to understand so i understand why not some deep thinking why but relationship why
0: that's a big gap in relationships or i'm thinking about any conversation i've had in a relationship where there is conflict where someone is upset with me and i don't I'm gonna need to know why. Yeah. And when people, especially emotionally dominant people, can't explain the why, mm-hmm. then I'm coming from a different angle than you, Leslie. Where I'm saying I'm not. I don't think I'm at fault. And I need to know why. Right. And these people can't explain because it's the emotions that are right. hurt, not the logic that's hurt. That's right. But and CI so I big.
1: Right. The thing that I think is fascinating about the people in the thinking centered triad is that logic is so important to you. And I, I just think life is illogical as a two. So I, I'm trying to understand the feelings behind what people did, not the thinking behind what people did. And you I, know, so I, my I, thing is, why did you quit loving me? Or some sappy uh, right blah, stuff like that.
2: Yeah. Mm.
0: Why did you quit loving me? That's, that's so big. But just why, why did you hurt me? Why I feel hurt and you did it. Yep. So it's, it's other placed. And then the other person is saying, I don't think I did that. Can you explain that? And then you can't explain the hurt. Right. And that's just a hard.
1: Hmm. Well, and then you lose. If you're the feeling type and you can't explain the hurt, you lose.
0: Well, the relationship loses.
1: Well, sure. On a lofty place.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I know because my feelings follow my thoughts, and so if my thoughts aren't correctly understanding a situation, uh, my feelings are not correct in a sense. You know, yeah. I mean, in therapy, we talk about corrective emotional experiences right. where you need to experience the correct emotion for what's happened. But but I have to have that set by someone outside of me who can explain emotions clearly. I mean, I've I've had to. I feel sometimes like I've watched. Other people respond emotionally so that I can understand how you're supposed to feel because my feelings follow my thoughts and my thoughts aren't, um, especially under duress, they're not accurate. Yep. So now there are my feelings. So I feel like I've watched the world. I watched all my friends growing up. I watched people for how they respond, especially my friends who are more emotional, so that I can understand <laughs> right. what it's supposed to look like and then maybe go try it. But that doesn't that doesn't happen for me without work.
1: Yeah, it's a lot of work. And do you think that's why people are just in broken relationships everywhere? It's like people don't do the work to understand anymore, and so it's just broken relationship after broken relationship. They're everywhere, everywhere.
2: Yeah, they're, everywhere. they're everywhere. Yeah. This is
0: a silly question. Is, da- is doubt a feeling?
2: I mean, for me, it is. It's it's uh, feels kind of like shame because the premise is I'm probably not good or right here.
0: The reason why I ask is, I like what you said there about uh, when you talked about how feelings is, are, are what support your thinking, that your second mm-hmm. thing's feeling. And you were talking about how you trust your, your doubt. And for, I think for anyone who's curious about the, how can a six be thinking dominant and thinking repressed? Yeah. This just uh, is a big libel for me of you trust the feet. So you're taking it in with thinking. Yes. But you don't trust your thinking and you trust your feelings, which are you you said, ultimately I trust my doubt. So then the hang up is there on the feelings and thinking doesn't get used as the output. Only the That's input. Right. Is that, is that right?
2: It, and it feels like chasing your tail.
0: Yeah. Hmm.
1: You know, that's a perfect explanation. And the overarching term in my Enneagram language is uh, underdeveloped thinking or, um, you know, thinking that just doesn't get you anywhere, right? right, right. But, Except
0: for chasing your tail. <laughs> yeah,
1: it just gets you to that. But I do think there's a thing when sixes get going in that circular pattern I believe that they think they're circling higher and higher and higher. Like, I think they think the circle's getting wider and wider and wider. And I wonder if the circle's getting actually smaller and smaller and smaller.
2: Can you say more about that? That's intriguing.
1: I think sixes believe that the circle is getting wider and wider and wider and is including more and more and more information, when Mm -hmm. actually I wonder if the circle isn't getting smaller and smaller and smaller and is an increasing repeat of the same information.
2: Yes, I think that is that is how I experience it. It feels like, the. I think that thinking will work, right? Right. So, but thinking creates feelings that follow thinking that right. create catastrophe and catastrophizing, which feels bigger. Right but is actually more and more anxiety-producing and more and more rigid and more and more exhausting and small. Yes, that's what I think. But it's more intense, so it feels like I'm getting somewhere because it's more intense. Well, yeah, and
1: you're going faster and faster and faster because the circumference is smaller and smaller and smaller, right? Mm -hmm. One thing we probably should have done at the top that we need to do right now for listeners is um, I just recently decided that rather than use language phobic, counterphobic and both, mm-hmm. I would put phobic and counterphobic on a continuum. Okay. So that this end, the the left end is phobic and over here is counterphobic. And it's, uh, for lack of a better way to do it, it's numbers of one to 10. So, tell everybody where you would put yourself on that continuum today. And then can you talk about whether or not that changes from day to day and which one is primary for you? And has that always been true? You know, kind of talk through a little bit about that.
2: Okay. Yeah. I would say probably I'm somewhere like around a, okay, so I'm, I'm a four closer to the phobic side. Yeah. Yeah. Can mostly relate all of my life to, the phobic experience. Um, But when I'm in safe relationships, like even in my divorced family where maybe mom was the the more present parent and so became kind of the safe parent. Right. She got all my counterphobic movements. Yep. Interesting. And hardly any of my phobic. Right. And that was very confusing for me. In terms of being eight years old and not quite understanding why I was so difficult. Exactly. You know, being labeled difficult. So where it really matters, there's there's more counterphobic when it's safe to push back. Um, but I mostly relate to the counterphobic and to the phobic side of six.
1: Okay. Do you know you don't come across that way?
2: I have been told that. (laughs)
1: do you think that was more obvious in you before you became a counselor and before you started doing therapy for yourself and with other people and all that?
2: Yes. I I can feel the nuanced differences in my phobic nature.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think that is really missing in Enneagram literature. I think the differences in nuance in phobic and counterphobic sixes is the sweet spot that we're missing learning from. Hmm. Because I, it's always been, are you phobic or counterphobic? And yeah. that's just a bad question.
2: I think it probably is. Because if you're a person with whom within whom paradoxes exist, right. how can you not kind of toggle between those right. two experiences? And if you don't understand what safety brings you, you may not understand, like when I had, the closer my friends get, and I'm in, an, I'm, I've been in Austin for four years, so building new friendships is really fragile and tender for me. It's a sure. whole new world when sure. I had long standing relationships where I used to live. And if I didn't know the Enneagram, I wouldn't be able to figure out why the closer I get to a few friends, the more I feel a little push and a little bit of anger and a little bit of, oh, I'm not sure I like this friendship. Yeah. I, I don't. Like I feel safe to be more counterphobic and be like, I don't like what that, I don't like that decision they did. I don't, whereas when I'm in the phobic newness of everything, there's just not a lot of that. Right. But safety actually pulls out my counterphobic space. (laughs) But if I didn't know that, I would be like, oh, I must hate my new friends. Well, that sucks.
1: Wow. But it,
2: it's like I have to understand my own continuum with that so that I can rightly assess because my brain's always trying to assess why am I feeling this? Why am I feeling pushback? Yeah. Which is a different feeling.
0: Another bonus to changing the the verbiage or the, yep. the way of looking at it mm-hmm. when the terms like are you phobic or counterphobic is so polarized right. that then it changes the question that and the work that sixes try to do for themselves. So, for instance, at the last workshop, someone came up and all they wanted—they were asking, "Hey, I, what podcasts have counterphobic sixes? And this because I'm a counterphobic six, and I don't. And my answer was, "You're still—you're still a six, though. It doesn't. Your motivation doesn't change." That's the, right. B- right. But they're just so detached from this spectrum idea that then it's—I must be—I need to do. Something different. Does that make sense?
1: It makes total sense, and I it does. does for you too. And I, I think in one of the questions we ask in the the podcast information we ask you to answer if you want to is when and how did you figure out your anagram number? And when you talked about the book, you said I felt so captured by the paragraph about paradoxes for a six, and I think that's the counterphobic phobic thing. It's like, why wouldn't we have always had it on a continuum? And why wouldn't we have always recognized that that's just another paradox? That
2: right, to put yourself I've always somewhere. I've been so confused by yes, my own yes, reaction. Yes. I've said before when someone said, because I, I always get asked by people who know Enneagram, are you when they find out I'm a six, are right. you phobic or chanaphobic? And I always say, well, it depends on the setting. That's right. And this is what was part of confusing for uh, a confusion for me before I knew Enneagram wisdom was that when I could, because I'm as a six, I want the world to be the best possible world. And I want everyone to do good. Right. (laughs) And I want everyone to kind of do the same good. It makes sense to me and feel safe. But when I'm in a room of rule followers, I want all of them to shake it off and get wild and stop being so rigid. But when I'm in a room full of wild people, uh-huh. I just want order. I just want someone, because for me, it's what's the greater good in this moment. And that can change my phobic or counterphobic experience.
1: So then do you think that because of that way that you see, it is a particular gift of yours, regardless of what's happening in the room, to lead people back to the middle?
2: I do, because people amaze me and make sense to me, Yeah, no matter where they're coming from.
1: Yeah, we are so polarized right now. I think children aren't even taught about the middle. Right. It's how you take care of yourself here and how you take care of yourself over here, but not about the middle.
0: One of the things that you kind of said that we wanted to talk about today, you said about being a six, anxiety, and the stories we tell ourselves. Hmm. Can you talk about that third part, the stories we tell ourselves?
2: Yeah. This is one of those vulnerable places for me as a six, anytime this is um, exposed, because it's the first, you know how ones will say, I can't believe that people don't think these either condemning thoughts or don't have the inner critic. I didn't know that people weren't always telling themselves stories. I just had no idea. And my storyteller is constant. So if I'm just driving somewhere before I know it, if I've been a little mindless and I haven't really been aware of kind of my environment or my feelings or my thoughts, I will be in a conversation that is theoretical or it's sometimes if I'm too anxious, it's a replay, right? I'll replay something to try to, Um, soothe the anxiety, which doesn't work, by the way, sixes who are listening. Um, And I will be caught in a story where I am trying to either prove myself, which is, I think, that just long-term journey with self-doubt and self-trust. I will be trying to make sense or connect the dots around Mm -hmm. something, and I will come up with a story that only typically increases my fear. Again, this is if I'm not like engaging it actively and kind of aware. Mm -hmm. So I will walk away from a meal and have had a great time. And on the drive home, I will begin telling myself a story about how they experienced me or what they thought about what I said. Mm -hmm. Um, If I said that one thing too often, Mm -hmm. if I, I, I just will tell a story. And by the time I get home, I have feelings about those thoughts, about things I think they thought or felt.
1: Yeah, that's fascinating to me because uh, this conversation, more than any experience I've had in 30 years, is explaining to me why twos and sixes, uh, why when people are learning the Enneagram, they confuse twos and sixes. I've never gotten it like I get it today. So I'll be a better teacher because of this. So I have a question about all this because I, I do the storytelling too, but I do it in a two way. What do you think is the difference in your storyteller and a one's voices?
2: Cause there's some thing, there's some overlap there. Um, I wonder if the, and so I think I'm just going to spitball this one. Cause I don't have it in my body. Uh, when you say that I'm searching for my body, kind of like, what do I feel? Yeah. Might be different. Of course I'm not a one. So I don't understand exactly how they experience the condemnation. Let Um, me,
1: let me throw you a couple of words and see if it helps you. Yeah. Do you think it's a difference in being insecure and or critical? My, is your voice insecure as opposed to a one's voice, which is always critical. It sounded like you were saying, I wonder what they thought about that. And I think a one would say they thought that was stupid.
0: seems like the six of retelling, thinking back over it, retelling the story. Is a lot of questions yeah and, yeah 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 that's and good for one it's not yeah. it's not it questions, might be more statements it's direct
2: yeah yeah it's more questions that's for sure it's not statements my storyteller doesn't really tell me statements unless i've let it really run amok and then it will start to tell me shaming statements not 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 really guilty statements, but yeah. Yeah. statements. yeah 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 but it's about, was I a good friend? Was I loyal in that moment? Was I safe for them? I'm very aware. If I am worried, I wasn't safe. For somebody else, I'll be more likely to replay what happened. Yeah. So yeah. I think it has to do with that realm more than criticism.
1: Yeah. That's all very interesting because it all comes in ones, twos, and sixes from being nonproductive thinkers. Yes. Yeah.
0: This is a turn in the subject.
1: Uh Uh-huh. What you got?
0: Uh, You said that you love talking about how you have twins. And how old are they?
2: They're eight. Eight
0: Eight-year-old. And both?
2: They're both boys. Both boys. Yes.
0: And how? Nothing
2: but feet and farts in my house. (laughs) (laughs) I love that so much.
0: Whitney has a 35-year-old boy and a 5-year-old boy in her house. Yes, she does. Same thing. That's exactly
1: right. (laughs) And I, there's something I could say, but I'm just going to let this all be. <laughs>
0: yeah. And you talked about, and you said this word a lot in this conversation, or to me a lot, uh, shame. Mm-hmm. And you're talking about how um, in our talking before the podcast, uh, talking about shame for moms who just don't love being a mom, that they love their kids and but not motherhood. Motherhood, <laughs> right. Can you talk about that?
2: Yes. Um, well, not surprisingly, it comes from my own experience of, um, well, a, just having twins. So as a six, who is an amazing planner and, and again, sometimes, you know, Proverbs talks about you're making plans, but that may not be what's going, what's happening. I love that proverb and I hate that proverb because I'm going to make plans and they seem so good. Yeah. And my plan was to have one kid and be a mess and get through the learning curve, which are terrible times for me. Learning curves are so insecurity building. And, and then I'm gonna have a second one and I'm gonna be so good at it by then. And I won't have the doubt and I'll be amazing. And, and that's just how it's gonna go. I never told anybody that because how embarrassing to name your plan like that, but that was my plan. So when I'm sitting there getting an ultrasound with my first pregnancy here, and the lady shows me the little bean that's so little, sweet, little bean. And then she says, do you want to see your other baby? I said, no. <laughs> I don't want t-
1: there to be another baby.
2: <laughs> and, I, and Ethan and Ezra, if you're hearing this, I love you to bits and pieces. But my knee-jerk response was, that's not my plan. Yeah. So I felt the drowning immediately because I kind of like a five would do my competency is built on my plan, right. and my information and my readiness. And I have a fairly decent five wing that comes into play around stress for me. I get to where I start aiming, aiming, aiming and never firing. I just aim, 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 aim. And then I just, I've had bosses come and tell me, please do the hard thing first, because you'll just never get to it. Stop planning and actually get some work done. I I love planning so much that I would just prefer to plan and prioritize and not really fire. Um, But so for me, it was just from the get go of um, feeling that drowning experience of I am not going to be able to cope the way I normally do with what's happening to me and what's about to happen to me. And I don't, I, I've never had a singleton child, so I don't know what it's like to have one. I don't know what I would have been like, but for sure, the experience of I love my children, but I don't, don't like motherhood was put on the map really quickly. And, and we, that's and-
1: such an, a brave thing to say. And I know that you uh, work around the topic and lead groups based on brave motherhood. Right. But I, I don't want brave motherhood to kind of get lost out there when I bring it up because it's so brave to say that motherhood is hard. You know, it's this yes. myth that it's just so lovely and perfect. Right. And th- the line they tell you when you say, I don't know what to do. And they say, Oh, you'll figure it out. Every mother before you has, there's nothing comforting in that.
2: No, not for me because I don't really trust that I'll get it or figure it out.
1: Yeah. Is it,
0: and is there a bigger thing in the world that any parent or expecting parent or want to be parent, is there a bigger expectation that we, that we have than what it's going to be like when it happens? Like our expectations of, right. like you said, I'm going to have this one and it's going to go like this. And I think every person who wants to be a parent has a big expectation. And is it ever no what you expected it to be?
1: I think it's for sure not. And I think it gets to be very complex. So I want to just put two things on the table uh, the first is, I trust, Joel, that you remember the age you were when your plan was to have all boys.
0: I was in third grade. I was in
2: <laughs>
0: I, That's my, common.
2: In common. Grade.
0: No, I always thought I was going to have, I was like, I, not in a chauvinist way, but a man's man. Yeah. And, yeah. I, and I think I'll be a great dad. And my first nieces or nephews were nephews. Right, and we had a good thing going, and I was like, "This is what God wants is for me to be a father to boys."
1: That's right, yeah. yeah. And then,
0: bam, girl, girl, girl. <laughs>
1: <laughs> wow, boy, boy, yeah.
0: Third one's boy, then girl, a girl, then girl, a girl, boy, girl. <laughs>
1: and and I, um...
0: but just to, I'm sorry, just real fast, but that's the biggest expectation to let go of, even when it's already done and happened.
2: Exactly. Like we have expectations
0: exactly. about a new job, but yes. think, you know, you move on quickly yeah. from right. what it was. Well, and
2: I think if you don't know your personality, you, or at least you don't have language for it. So for me, the Enneagram was so helpful because it gave me language yeah. and I, you know, you can't do anything with what you don't know and you, what you can't name. I always talk to clients about naming and then ordering. Can you name it? Cause if you can name it, you can order it sure. into meaning, you know, into your life. So, I mean, if I did, I didn't know it was a six or that, that captured kind right. of my spirit. So when I found out it was two boys, I had to take a day. Now, if that's hard to be gracious to yourself, if you don't know that your plans being broken and changed is going to have a decent impact on you and you got to make space for that. It's and very you hard have and self-compassion on that. Yeah, Cause everyone yeah. wants you to feel a certain way or they're uncomfortable.
1: And if you're uh, one who doesn't have a lot of self compassion, it's a very odd time to try to muster up some. Our yeah. fourth child was a twin, and we lost the other twin during the pregnancy. And mm-hmm. I, I actually, uh, we already had three children, and I, when I found out that I was pregnant with twins, I thought, I can't do, I, I don't know how I'm going to do this. Right. I'm 37 years old. I don't think I've got it to do this. And then, three months later, we only had one baby. Uh, It was vanishing twin syndrome. So that baby disappeared, which is its own thing. And then it's, oh, this is my fault. I should have wanted two babies. I should have, right? It's like all this stuff that we make up, none of which is true, but it's very difficult to For most people in the world yeah. to be surrounded by people who know the truth and tell them the truth, most yeah. people pat you and say, I, I would probably feel that way too. That's not helpful.
2: Right. And I think that's where brave motherhood came from. I just began writing articles on each emotion that was hitting the map and blowing up in my face. You know, and so each week we tackle one and talk about the strategies and coping, and just all the normative. This is normal. Yeah. And yep. Normalizing and then comforting and soothing techniques around anger, loneliness. A lot of moms tell me, "I never yelled at anybody before this." Right. Right. And I yell every day. And feel know? terrible about it. And feel terrible about it, and that that message of bad mom. It doesn't get any more specific than that awful phrase. You know, I'm a bad mom and it comes in all kinds of different ways and messages, masks and experiences, but that's the the main thing just under the surface. And no matter what number you are, that's a terrible feeling.
1: Well, and we're to a point now where you're a bad mom, if you have a career and you're a bad mom, if you don't, and you're a bad mom, if you stay home and you're a bad mom, if you don't. So um, can people tell people where they can find those articles?
2: Well, right now I'm just in Austin leading local brave motherhood groups about three or four times a year. Yeah. And, um, and that's, that's where they are. And and maybe at some point, um, I could find a way to get that to more moms. It's certainly something I think everybody, and I'm not a writer by any stretch, but, but it's so important to say anything about how normal loneliness is and anger and envy and jealousy and the difference between those as a mom and. And, and just depression and anxiety and fear, you know, moms who've never felt fear, whether or not they're in a head triad, are going to sleep, wondering if their kids will drown or burn. You well, know, the,
1: the- and, and I, I can remember thinking, I have got to go to sleep. So you have got to stop crying or yes. we can't love each other. <laughs> like <laughs> I remember having that exact thought. I, I have to go to sleep. I, I have to right. go to sleep and then feeling bad that I had to get some sleep in between every right. two hour feedings and all that. stuff.
2: Because when are, when do we have the least amount of tools to work with? Right. Probably when we're sleep deprived. That's right. And when do you need the tools? When you're in a new job?
1: Yep, exactly. And, and it's both what a of a terrible things. collision. Yeah.
2: <laughs> and for fathers too, this isn't just a mom thing. This is anybody who's parenting. I mean, it's it's a new world.
1: All right. Well, I've got so many notes here of things that I want to talk to you about. I want to talk to you about um, your heart for other counselors to learn Enneagram wisdom, and I, that's not self-serving in any way. I would just like for you to talk to other counselors about how the Enneagram helps you in helping people.
2: Okay. Well, I mean, in this day and age, because of people like Suzanne and Joel Stabil. I have clients call in and say, basically, do you do Enneagram informed therapy, which sometimes kind of startles me and scares me that people are are maybe only looking for counselors yeah. who know the Enneagram, but I see why they want that, right? Um, they want the commonality of language and the giggle you get when you kind of feel known and understood. And it, I think people think it's a shortcut. They are not going to have to... Um, <laughs> They're not going to have to struggle with the being known in the therapy room, um, which is kind of a lovely, twisty path. And so I, I have a little bit of ambivalence about some of that. But for the most part, people ask for it. And if they don't, so that's that's the first answer. People come in just speaking it overtly, and we're right into it. And I don't even ask. They just come in. Couples come in. I'm a nine. She's a three. Dah, 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 you know, and I actually pull back from that and slow that down. Yeah, um, yeah. But when it's not someone who walks in, and this is why I think therapists, and this is why I run workshops and teach therapists about Enneagram as best as I can, is because when you're sitting with a client and they never say the word Enneagram, and we know in our heart, we're not supposed to be typing anybody. Right. And that's hard for me as a six, because my brain is going, like Joel said, it's trying to connect the dots with what are they so I can meet their needs. But for me, if I didn't know what you taught on stances, I would probably just be running amok with trying to figure out their number, which is not a beneficial part to therapy for me as the clinician. Right. But if I just get a sense about their stance, that is all I need. The stance work is where they're off balance and where they're probably most likely going to feel the therapeutic benefit of us bringing up the side that doesn't get enough care and attention in their story, in their life, in their process. And so it's a wonderful feeling as a therapist. I don't even have to get it right. Right. Cause it's, it's not, I don't have to get it right. No one's ever going to tell me later, you know, right. you really got me um, my number, but it, it's, it it first of all, as a six and as a head triad therapist, it tells me to stop that carnival ride of what are they? Yeah. And, it, it dials in for me a pathway to the part that make the most, m- may make the most difference in their life. So in other words, if I'm sitting with someone and maybe they, and maybe they know their number and there are four, well, if I decided to go after their feelings, the whole session, they would probably feel connection and they would, I feel some knownness, which is wonderful, but they won't feel probably therapy right if we don't get to their doing
1: yep that's right i
2: i it's fascinating
1: to me because you know you know that i think everybody needs a therapist period everybody needs a therapist everybody needs a spiritual director or a guide that's not a therapist i'm right i just think that if you want to do life yeah, well that's
2: that's that's the great yeah Yep. you figure duo. that out i love yeah. that
0: phrase too because when you and the reverend uh, taught on spiritual practice, and when you do teach mm-hmm. on spiritual practices in the enneagram, you say that people often pick a spiritual practice that uh, accentuates their dominant center. That's right. Instead, right. and when, what we should be doing is picking one that brings up our repressed center. And That's right. you said you feel more uh, might be easier. You might feel more mm-hmm. connected to, but you won't feel. Like you're getting the therapy from the practice.
2: And my ethical duty is to provide a service of help. Yeah. Right. And so at, at some level I'm checking with my own ethical guidelines of does it feel really helpful if right. all we did was work with their dominant center. Right. right. Um, and so for me, it just, it just creates a lens really for me to imagine what growth would look like in a more specific way and what area is probably off balance the most.
1: And, you know, this is very, uh, I don't know what, but but I think it's important. And that is if if you have an Enneagram-informed therapist and you really have done some Enneagram work and you really know what your number is, it saves a lot of money. Yeah. And people don't have lots of money for therapy. So if they right. can get there sooner, yeah. then that's a pretty great thing, I think. Yeah. You know, one thing I just want to add it. on top of that is that, You know, I've had the same therapist for 18 years. And at the end of the day, when I'm really struggling and I can't move, it always comes down to the same two things. One, that I'm not thinking well, that my thinking is really not good. And the other, it always comes down to adoption, which always comes down to my lost childhood message, which is you're wanted. At the end of the day, those are the two things. And you'd you'd think after in and out of therapy for all these years that it would be, oh, this is about something new. (laughs) But it it isn't.
2: (laughs) It isn't. it's like that thorn in your flesh doesn't necessarily change.
1: Exactly. That's it, exactly. All right, I have some more notes here of things that I want to talk about. You said that one of the paradoxes that you wrap your arms around is dependence and independence. Do you think that is determined by where you are on the continuum between phobic and counterphobic, or is it the other way around?
2: It sounds like you want to talk some about the independent, independence and dependence paradox and kind of how they're generated, like how they come about.
1: That's exactly what I'd like to talk about.
2: Because it, it is a very strange, when you're when you're me and it's happening it's a very strange experience um to switch from being dependent on someone else to feel trust and absolutely pushing that away in an effort to trust
1: and it's right. hard for the other person yeah too
2: right it's a mixed message it's a mixed signal yeah they're just related. It's the only way I can talk about it is that they're related to each other in, in that, um, I could give an example that might help. Okay, great. Okay. So in my marriage, I'm married to Kevin, who um, is uh, a nine on the Enneagram. He's done the work on that. And so he struggles to communicate openly and clearly and he's doing a lot of communicating and thinking in his head. Uh-huh.
1: And, uh-huh. That's good.
2: But it's not coming out. So yeah. when I need to hear from him to know how we're doing, I feel very dependent. Very I don't know how I'm doing as a wife unless you speak. Yep. But it's such a unsafe feeling that I will choose independence and try to kill my need for him to speak into it and i will become very independent and i don't need you to speak in anymore i am going to move away from you in that e- in an effort to feel more safe and secure which does not work and then i'm back to dependency again if i'm not aware of this movement
1: so we could say that for fours it's emotional pull push pull but for sixes it's thinking push pull
2: Yeah. That's a fascinating thing to learn today.
1: Okay, you may have just begun to answer my next question, which is I've talked a, a lot over the years about sixes kind of trying to muster up so that they will feel courageous. Yes. Can you muster up independence? Can
2: you muster up independence? The reason it's hard to answer that is for me, my independence is reactionary to feeling unsafe.
1: Oh, so it's not without a, a reason, then. Somebody, right. yeah, it yeah, comes got it.
2: Very easily, I don't have to muster it. Yeah, um, it's just usually a reaction to not yeah. feeling safe and deciding that I should try to feel safer within myself. Yeah, which is which is a is a healing movement for me, but not as a reaction, but more as a voluntary work. That's myself. good. That's
1: that's lovely to think about. A reaction leading to a voluntary work, as opposed to normally reactions lead to mistakes.
2: That's in right. my world, for me, they do. Yeah, yeah for yeah. me they do too. Yeah. So if it's voluntary independence, meaning trying to get closer to that interdependent lifestyle, where it's okay to have needs in your marriage, yeah. and it's also okay to believe in yourself, like those two things dancing together is where I want to live. But because life isn't a perfect world and I make mistakes, if I'm not doing that work voluntarily, it'll happen by accident, by reaction, and then it doesn't actually build anything for
1: And me. that's one of the reasons it's so important to me that people learn the Enneagram, because you get to choose a reaction. Yes. And when you don't know the Enneagram, it so often chooses you. Yes. Predictably, the same one over and over chooses you, and you want to do it different, but you have no idea what direction to move into.
2: No traction and no feeling of choice. No. Choices are just such a gift.
1: And you get, it's interesting, isn't it, that uh, people who don't know the Enneagram think it's reductive, when in fact, it's just not, it's the exact opposite of that.
2: No. And it blows my mind on a continuous basis and I've studied it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I, I think it's so expansive. Honestly, it can be really overwhelming. There's just so much to it. I feel like it's not reductive at all.
1: Okay. I want to make sure we accomplish at least two more things and here's one. Okay. What would you say to sixes who are afraid of the Enneagram, who are put off by it? Like you kind of led into it just now, but you know, I I would give anything if I could figure out how to get more sixes in the room when I'm teaching. And mm. it it's just uh, like we were with about 275 people this weekend, and we had about 20 sixes, which is kind of good. I mean, it's mm. it's terrible, but it's kind of good for sixes. Can you talk to people who are afraid to go do Enneagram work a little bit?
2: Yeah. Cause I mean, even when I first came to hear you, Suzanne at a church here in Austin, I sat in the balcony with like one other person and there were, there was, there were not enough people to fill the whole church. And yet I was like, I'm sitting in the balcony. And that's my sort of physical way of expressing my skepticism. It's very physical when I'm in a new place, I sit in the back and okay. So speaking to uh, maybe skeptics about the Enneagram, Firstly, I would just validate that I get it. I get that. There's something scary. Uh, So for sixes there's something scary about hope. And, um, there's something scary about change. And as brave as we are, we're very calculated in our risk taking. And so I would just validate you and any six listening, or anyone who is trying to get a six to listen. It'll be to this. that
1: six is probably who, who are leery, <laughs> that, probably aren't listening. But
2: yes, but I, I totally get it, and it's scary to trust a new authority. And so, get lots of different books. Don't feel like you have to listen to one person if that's bothering you, or if that's scary to you, or if you're too drawn to it, but feel skeptical just vary your authors and vary those that you read make sure that they know their stuff but read different things that may help balance that fear of a new authority or a skeptic the skepticism about a new authority yeah
1: that's really helpful um,
2: yeah something like i would talk about how do you want to understand your anxiety and fear or or not because this is really the most helpful in my, what, 45 years of living and doing therapy for 16 years, this is the most helpful I've come to language around why we're so scared and why we feel so anxious and why we feel so pessimistic. And if you're pessimistic about the Enneagram, that's okay, come anyway. It's okay to listen to this and be pessimistic and be skeptical, you haven't done anything wrong, you're just exploring. And let yourself explore and be allowed to, in the end, decide it's not for you. And it has taken me a long time to realize when I hear, so as a six, when I'm listening to anybody who knows something about what they're talking about, I will not be able to not be drawn and have a natural trust of that. It just happens. But it's scary um, to trust someone else. Um, and so I think there's kind of this dance of, for me, it's the dance between desire and duty. And that's always what I'm working with is the dance of desire and duty. And so if I feel like I have to go learn something, I'm even more turned off. If I can find the desire, then I'm all in and I find things really helpful. But for me, I have to think about those two categories and see where I'm, where I'm coming from in any moment. That's very helpful. Very helpful. That's what's been good for me to, to just lean into desire and, um, try to work with and let the duty part fall away more and more and lean into desire and let myself learn things that are overwhelming, but that feels hard.
1: Sure. Sure. Uh, The one thing I want to point out to people who are listening is that, you put yourself just um, on just a little bit on the phobic side of halfway between phobic and counterphobic. Mm-hmm. And you talk about and write about and lead groups around brave motherhood. Mm-hmm. And you have talked a lot about the things you do that you were afraid to do, but you did anyway. Mm-hmm. What... Motivates you in all of these circumstances to be brave, because it doesn't seem to be likely in my history on the phobic side of the middle of phobic and counterphobic.
2: Well, so when I think so, what I just talked about with duty and desire—that is really big for me because duty is why I'm brave. I can't not be faithful to a friend or loyal to the PTA or be the room mom if there's no room mom. So duty always is gets me on the target of kind of why I'm brave. But the bullseye for me is if I can be brave around things I desire, that is harder for me. And it's kind of like a boundary issue for a two. I, If I can say yes to the things that aren't just dutiful, but that are desirous for me, then that's, that's what growth looks like for me. But duty is why I get out of bed and start a group and write a thing and come do a podcast and, you know, and this was duty and desire, by the way. So that was a great mix, but
1: that makes me happy.
2: Yeah. So I would say duty is what keeps my legs and mouth moving, um, even when I don't want to. But my goal is to orient more toward desire and let that lead my bravery, like that really call out my courage. But that's rough. That's hard to do.
1: Yeah, but boy, that language is really easy for people to relate to. I I can't think of a better way for us to end our time talking together than for you to say, y'all go do this. I don't know how to thank you enough for your time and for our friendship and for all the good stuff, all the good stuff.
2: been great. It, thank you for having me.
1: So I'm grateful for who you are and what you're doing in the world and for your bravery and all that, all of it. I'm just grateful for you.
2: Thank you. The feelings are mutual. Thanks, Joel.
0: Yeah, that was good. It was so
2: good.